Tonight I'll be continuing in the series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, this course on the four foundations of mindfulness. Tonight begin the discussion of the Four Noble Truths. And this is the last set of instructions the Buddha gave in this discourse. It concludes the section on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas. So this is what the sutta says, the instruction says. Again, monks, in regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And how does one contemplate dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here one knows as it really is. This is dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the arising of dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the cessation of dukkha. And one knows as it really is. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So it's probably not by accident that the Buddha concludes the teachings, all of the teachings we've discussed in the Satipatthana Sutta, that he concludes them with this contemplation of these four truths. Because they express the very essence of the Buddha's awakening. And despite the many differences among various Buddhist traditions and schools, they are all in agreement that the Four Noble Truths are the foundation of understanding and realization. This is well expressed in one short sutta. It says, just as footprints of all animals can fit within the footprint of an elephant, so too, whatever wholesome states there are, all of them are embraced by the Four Noble Truths. So this teaching, this scheme of understanding, framework of understanding, really encompasses all that is wholesome, all the way up to enlightenment, to full realization. Not only do these teachings on the Four Truths embrace all that is wholesome, The Buddha has said that it is the indispensable foundation for awakening. This is from one of the other suttas. Just as bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, without having built the lower story of a peaked house, I will erect the upper story, this would be impossible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truths of dukkha, its cause, its end, and the path to its end, I will completely make an end to dukkha. This is impossible. Just as bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, having built the lower story of a peaked house, I will then erect the upper story. This would be possible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, Having made the breakthrough to these four noble truths, I will completely make an end to dukkha. This is possible. So the Buddha is saying very clearly the essential nature of our understanding these four noble truths, that without it, awakening is impossible. So the first challenge facing us as we hear and try to apply these teachings, is what the word dukkha means. Because in many ways, this term defines the entire spiritual path. The Buddha often said in the teachings, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha. And that out of his vast and limitless knowledge, He teaches only this, dukkha and its end. So clearly, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha. He teaches just one thing, dukkha and its end. We need to have a really good understanding of what the term means. 
The problem is that in English there is no one single word that fully captures the range of its meanings. I looked in the Polytech Society Poly English Dictionary. I wanted to see. There's a big, big dictionary of poly terms. There was an interesting footnote around this term dukkha. It says there is no word in English covering the same ground as dukkha does in poly. Our modern words are too specialized, too limited, and usually too strong. Sukha and dukkha are ease and disease, or well-being and illness. But disease and illness mean something else in English. We are forced, therefore, in translation to use half-synonyms, no one of which is exact. Dukkha is equally mental and physical. So the translation as pain is too predominantly physical, sorrow too exclusively mental. But in some connections they have to be used, in default of any more exact rendering. Discomfort, suffering, ill, and trouble can occasionally be used in certain connections. Misery, distress, agony, affliction, and woe are never right. They are all much too strong and are only mental. So I wanted to read that just to give you a sense of how difficult it is to really come to an understanding of what the term means as we try to translate it into English. So tonight's talk is going to be an exploration of the meaning of the term dukkha. Very commonly, you know, in the text, when we read the text, it's translated as suffering. The noble truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. And although in some contexts this translation works well, it is not really a perfect fit. Why? In one teaching, the Buddha said, whatever is felt is included in dukkha. Okay? Whatever is felt is included in dukkha. But as we all know, some feelings are pleasant and enjoyable. The Buddha talked about pleasant feelings. We don't feel them as suffering. So suffering is not a very good translation for us there. And then to say that all things are suffering because of their changing nature also doesn't correspond to our experience. When painful feelings change to pleasant ones, how do we feel? We're not suffering. When painful turns to pleasant, we feel relief, we feel ease, we feel happy. So while suffering as the often used translation of dukkha, is sometimes appropriate, it can also be misleading because it doesn't always resonate with our actual lived experience. We need to look further. We need to go beyond dukkha as suffering. So we might begin to, better, to get a better sense of its meaning if we look at the term, at the word etymologically, what are the roots of, of the term in Pali mean? It's interesting. The word dukkha is made up of a prefix, du, which means bad or difficult, and the root, ka, which means empty. So what does this mean? Bad emptiness or bad empty. Well, empty here refers to several things some very specific things, and others which are more general. One of the specific meanings refers to the empty axle hole of a wheel. You know, like in a car or a cart, there's, there's an axle which holds the wheels, and the axle is that bar which fits into the empty hole at the center of the wheel. 
So ka here means that empty axle hole of the wheel. Now if the axle fits badly into that center hole, that's the do, right? Bad or trouble. If the axle fits into the empty hole of the wheel badly, we get a very bumpy ride. And this is a good analogy for the ride through samsara. Years ago, when I first went to Burma, it was my first visit to Burma, and it wasn't at that time to go meditate, I went to visit uh, the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, who was kind of the head of one of the great lineages of Burmese Buddhism in Vipassana. He was the teacher of several of my teachers. So we went to Burma, we landed in Rangoon. It turns out he was at his home monastery in Upper Burma. So after some discussion, I was with a small group of people, we decided to fly up to Mandalay and then go out to his home monastery. And his home monastery was way out, way, way out in the countryside. And it had a big drum, which is what Mahasi means. Mahasi means big drum. So Mahasi Sayadaw is the Sayadaw of the temple with the big drum, which that's just a little uh, footnote. Well, the way we went from the airport to his monastery, it was a several-hour ride in an ox cart. Now, I don't know how many of you have recently been in an ox cart. <laughs> it was a really bumpy ride. Just hour after hour being bumped along, jostling along. So if you can imagine it at least, it can give you a very visceral sense of what dukkha means. Right? An axle fitting badly into the axle hole. But in more generalized terms, ka, empty, means devoid of permanence. It's empty of permanence or empty of a self that can control (coughs) or command experience. So here we begin to get a sense of the more inclusive meanings of the word dukkha. Not not limited like the term suffering, more inclusively words like unsatisfying, unreliable, stressful. Because if something is empty of permanence, empty of a self that can control or command phenomena, even when things are pleasant, even when things are going well, even on that side of our lives' experiences, there's something inherently unsatisfying or unreliable about them. And that's a more complete or comprehensive meaning of the term. I've referred often to the book by the Venerable Analyo on Satipatthana, which is a wonderful book on this discourse. He clarified an important point regarding these various translations of the word dukkha. So I just want to read what he said. He said, suffering, unlike unsatisfactoriness is not inherent in the phenomena in the world, only in the way in which the unawakened mind experiences them. Okay, so this is important. Suffering is not inherent in the phenomena of the world, only in the way in which the unawakened mind experiences them. This is indeed the underlying theme of the Four Noble Truths as a whole. The suffering caused by attachment and craving can be overcome by awakening. For an arhant, 
the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So do you see the difference here? Dukkha as unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. Yes, all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfying ultimately. But whether or not they cause suffering depends on our relationship to them. So this is an important point we need to understand as we consider the meaning of the term dukkha. We see that all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfying and at the same time we can bring the suffering in our minds to an end. And this is what the Four Noble Truths are about. So now if we have a somewhat clearer sense of what the term dukkha means, we can go back to the basic instruction the Buddha gave in the sutta, where he said, and one knows as it really is, this is dukkha. Okay, this is unsatisfying, this is unreliable. But now we're faced with a second challenge. Hopefully we have a big, broader sense of what the term means. But then the challenge is, what exactly is the this that is unsatisfactory, that is unreliable, uneaseful, and at times suffering? And one knows as it really is, this is dukkha. What is the this that the Buddha is talking about? Fortunately, as is usually the case, the Buddha elaborated what it is that is dukkha. And he did it in the very first discourse he gave after his enlightenment. You know, as most of you know, after his awakening under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, he spent the next seven weeks just sitting and walking around the tree contemplating various aspects of his realization. And then he considered, well, who can I teach this to? This very profound and subtle Dharma. And he thought of the five ascetics, you know, with whom he had practiced all the various austerities and ascetic disciplines for the previous six years. And he thought, they have the capacity to understand so they were living at that time in a deer park in Sarnath, which is just a small village across the river from Varanasi, or Benares as it's called, you know, the ancient Indian city. So the very first discourse the Buddha gave, after he had walked, it was like a six or seven day walk from Bodh Gaya to Varanasi. He walked, he met, these five ascetics. And the very first discourse he gave <coughs> has a beautiful name. This sutta is called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. And amazingly, this wheel of the Dharma has rolled over centuries, has rolled over continents, has rolled over oceans and is inspiring and guiding us here at the Forest Refuge 2,600 years later. This was a powerful discourse. He gave that wheel a good push, and we're still benefiting. So in this very first discourse, the Buddha lays out what is called the great middle way between the extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification. And then, as he proceeds, he lays out the Four Noble Truths as the framework for liberating wisdom. So I want to read just a little bit from this discourse. This is how the Buddha set the wheel of the Dharma in motion. Just, and if you can, imagine yourself 
back 2,600 years listening to these words. So thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Deer Park at Isipatana near Varanasi. Then he addressed the group of five bhikkhus. Monks, these two extremes ought not to be practiced by one who has gone forth from the household life. What are the two? There is addiction to indulgence of sense pleasures, which is low, coarse, the way of ordinary people, unworthy and unprofitable. And there is addiction to self-mortification, which is painful, unworthy and unprofitable. Avoiding both these extremes, the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, has realized the middle path. It gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to calm, to insight, to enlightenment, and to Nibbana. And what is that middle path realized by the Tathagata? It is the noble eightfold path and nothing else. Then he continues describing the Four Noble Truths. So this is the this that Dukkha refers to. The noble truth of Dukkha is this. Birth is Dukkha. Aging is Dukkha. Sickness is Dukkha. Death is Dukkha. Association with the unpleasant is Dukkha. Dissociation from the pleasant is Dukkha. Not to receive what one desires is Dukkha. In short, the five aggregates subject to grasping are dukkha. The Buddha laid out for us very clearly what he meant when he said these things are unsatisfying, unreliable, uneaseful, stressful, and at times suffering. So that brief description is interesting because the Buddha is pointing out the experience of dukkha, both in terms of the ordinary experiences of our lives. Birth and aging and illness and death and association with what we like. So just the very ordinary experience of our lives. The Buddha is suggesting that we look at that in these terms. But then he also... points on a deeper and more comprehensive level to dukkha as the five aggregates subject to grasping. So then it's as if he drops down a level. We begin to look at the very nature of all experience, not particular experiences, but what's the underlying, what's the substratum of all experience that is dukkha? That is these five aggregates subject to grasping. So it's quite amazing what's contained in just you know, three or four lines here. It's interesting, though, that even with those aspects that are part of the ordinary flow of our lives, how often do we stop to reflect deeply on them? You know, we're so often intent on the next hit of experience, the next thing we have to do, that we don't take time usually to step back and really look at what our lives are about. Remember, the Buddha didn't say, believe this. He said, come and see. Stop. Take a look at the nature of the mind and the body. Investigate the first noble truth for yourself. So that's the invitation. The Buddha is pointing out the truth of dukkha, what it is that is dukkha, and then he's saying, look, see, investigate. So as we begin the investigation, I found it very helpful to remember a line 
from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is repeated many times in the refrain, because it suggests a pathway of exploring this first noble truth. And this line in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is repeated very often, it's repeated after every instruction, it says, one abides, here contemplating dhammas, contemplating the first noble truth, internally, externally, and both. So those are important words. We can investigate how we actually experience dukkha internally in ourselves, externally in the world. So our understanding of the truth of dukkha becomes very comprehensive. When we look, when we investigate, we see that things are dukkha, unsatisfying, unreliable, sometimes suffering, in three different ways. First, there's the dukkha of experiences which are painful in themselves. This is where the translation of dukkha as suffering most frequently applies. And we just need to look around the world to see this. You know, there's the suffering caused by war and by violence and by hunger and by natural disasters and political and social oppression and injustice. And just the world is full of this kind of suffering. These are real situations for hundreds of millions of people. So this is not insignificant. This is an aspect of the first noble truth that we need to open to and see and integrate in our understanding. That's seeing it externally. Internally, there's the inevitable pain associated with the body, starting right with childbirth. You know, painful for the mother, painful for the child. And then, just in the course of living, you know, there's sickness, there's injury, there's aging. This is common to all of us. And most likely, we won't be feeling too great at the time of death. You know, most likely, there'll be some unpleasant feelings going on just as the body is weakening and decaying and dying. So all of this is just nature at work. Then there's also the optional but deeply conditioned suffering in the mind. I mean, the pain in the body is going to happen. That's just the nature of the body. But there's also the dukkha of the suffering in the mind that's born out of ignorance. Feelings of fear, of jealousy, of anger, of hatred, you know, of anxiety, of grief, of envy, of frustration, of loneliness. There's a long list of afflictive emotions, afflictive mind states that are painful, that are suffering. You know, many times in <clears throat> going to an interview with Saida Upandita and reporting on some of these difficult mind states, so I and others would report, and he would often say, oh, very good, now you're experiencing dukkha. Right. It's very interesting when we frame it in terms of a self, in terms of an I, and feeling sorry for ourselves and being caught and drowning in it, or when we can see those afflictive mind states and say, yes, this is dukkha, this is suffering, this is the first noble truth. Then we're really seeing it with wisdom. Each time we can open to these painful experiences, whether in the body or in the mind, we are investigating, we are realizing for ourselves this first noble truth. 
here one knows as it really is. This is dukkha. So we're actually practicing what the Buddha taught. The second way we experience dukkha, which is the unsatisfying, unreliable nature of things, is through the direct perception of their changing nature. That whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Can we really let that in? Not only let it in, but see it. Continue to see it. Everything that has the nature to arise, which is everything we experience, everything that has the nature to arise will also pass away. So here we may not feel it as suffering, necessarily, but we can come to realize that there's nothing that can be relied on to provide a lasting happiness, a lasting fulfillment, precisely because nothing lasts. It seems so obvious. And because of this truth of change, this truth of impermanence, it inevitably will lead us to times of association with what we don't want and separation from what we do. That is inevitable because things keep changing. And then to watch what our minds do with that. Do we resist what arises when we don't want it? Do we try to hold on to what arises as it changes? You know, on the conceptual level, all this seems so obvious. We know, we know that everything's changing. We know that in our experience we're often with things we don't want. You know, and things we do want go away. But still, somehow, that conceptual understanding has not fully translated into our lives. Because how often are we living just in anticipation you know, of what comes next? Could be the next meal, you know, or the next relationship, or the next job, or the next project, or the next breath. How often do we sit feeling the breath in the anticipation of the next one as if, ah, then I'll get it. But everything is just arising and passing. When we look back at our lives, where are all these things that we had looked forward to so much? When we look back on our lives and all the things that we wanted and were anticipating and often even enjoyed, where are they now? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves or enjoy pleasant experience. It's just to realize the very transitory nature of all of these things. They're unsatisfying, they're dukkha, because they're impermanent. They don't last, they're not reliable. And some powerful reflections can remind us of this. You know, the reflection that all times of being together with those we love will inevitably end in separation at one point or another. That all accumulation, whatever we accumulate in our lives that we are so attached to, will inevitably end in dispersion. And that all life inevitably ends in death. And at the moment of death, what is really of value? At the moment of death, what is really of importance to us? Now surprisingly, reflecting in this way on the truth of dukkha, simply seeing how things are free of hope and free of fear, 
brings a great lightness of heart. You know, when people hear of this kind of reflection, they think, oh, that's depressing. But actually, it's quite the reverse. When we reflect in this way, it's a great relief to be out of the grip of deluded enchantment. It's like, it's like the wicked witch has put a spell on us. You know, so that we don't see clearly that we're living in delusion. And so when we begin to come out of delusion and see things clearly, see things as they really are, there's a tremendous vividness and clarity and lightness of heart. So we experience dukkha in one way as things painful in themselves. We experience dukkha in another way as being the unreliability of changing phenomena. And then the third experience of dukkha is as the burdensomeness of conditioned existence. So think of what's needed to simply fulfill the basic needs of life. You know, working for food, to have water, to have shelter to have the appropriate medicine when we're sick. Now sometimes, and many of us are privileged in these ways, these things are obtained easily, but for many people, they're not obtained easily at all. There's a real struggle for these very basic necessities of living. But then for all of us, there's the effort needed to care for the body. You know, and keeping it clean and maintaining health as best we can. Recently, I've been watching a great video. It's called Planet Earth. It was a BBC documentary. Fantastic photography of the planet and all different aspects of nature. And there was one particular segment which showed the tremendous effort that certain species of male birds needed to make to attract a mate. You know, and they caught, the photography was fantastic, they caught this, these amazing mating dances and feather displays and nest-building competitions. You know, which of the males are going to build the best nest? And all of this effort just to propagate the genes. That's what all the effort was about. And many times, and this was what was so sad, their efforts weren't enough. The females weren't impressed enough. (laughs) And so the male went off rather dejectedly. So I call this kind of dukkha just the burdensomeness of maintaining things. I call this kind of dukkha the Buddhist equivalent of the second law of thermodynamics, which says, and I think this is correct, that all systems uninfluenced by outside forces tend to disorder. So this is the law of entropy, that systems without outside influence tend to disorder. This means that in order to sustain life, we need to keep introducing energy into the system. So just as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, this is the dukkha of life as work. We need to work in order to sustain life. And of course, in the end, entropy always prevails. You know, we we feed it, we feed it, we nourish it, we work to keep it going, but in the end, it tends to disorder. So in order to accomplish an understanding of this first noble truth, we need to reflect on and experience and investigate each of these different aspects of dukkha. We really need to investigate them in our lives so it's not just a concept. 
because we can readily understand the idea. The transforming value of them comes when we take the idea, the concept, and see it for ourselves in our own lives and in the world around us. So just a suggestion. When you hear the word dukkha, which comes up a lot in the Buddhist teachings, see what meaning you habitually ascribe to it. When you hear the word dukkha, what immediately comes to mind? Is it limited to what is obviously unpleasant? Is that our understanding of dukkha? Or can we begin to get the more comprehensive meaning, the sense of what the Buddha meant when he said all conditioned things are dukkha? You know, so we expand our understanding of what this all-important term means. There's a great British Buddhist scholar, his name is Gethin. He wrote, Understanding the first noble truth involves not so much the revelation that dukkha exists as the realization of what dukkha is. And I thought that really expressed our understanding. We really have to comprehend what dukkha is. And that means having a very comprehensive view of its meaning and then applying that investigation to our own lives. So the Buddha, as he usually did, helps us even further in this realization of dukkha, of the first noble truth. When he summed up, if you remember... He concluded the lines of, you know, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha. And then in short, the five aggregates subject to grasping are dukkha. So then he brings us down to a whole other level. Contained in the meaning of this one line, in short, the five aggregates subject to grasping or dukkha, contained in this one line is the whole of samsara conditioning. And by implication, an understanding of the three remaining noble truths that make possible our liberation. So I want to read one other short sutta because it really uh, elaborates on this statement of the Buddha. In short, what is dukkha? The five aggregates subject to grasping. So this is a discourse from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the collections. Suppose, bhikkhus, a dog tied up on a leash was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post or pillar. So too, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. The uninstructed worldling just keeps running and revolving around form, feelings, perception, volitions around consciousness. And as one keeps on running and revolving around them, We are not freed from them. We are not freed from birth, aging, and death. Not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Not freed from suffering. But the instructed noble disciple, that's us, does not regard form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitions as self, consciousness as self. One no longer keeps running and revolving around them. And as we no longer keep running around them, we are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death, freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, freed from suffering. You know, and when I read that, I just, I just loved the image of kind of the dog running and 
revolving around the post that it was tied to. And that analogy of how we're doing the same thing when we grasp at the five aggregates as being self. Our whole life is just this running around the aggregates. But when we don't take the aggregates to be self, that's what frees us from suffering. So, coming back to the instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta. Here one knows, as it really is, this is dukkha. So we have an understanding of what the word means, we have an understanding of what it refers to. With this understanding comes two magnificent results. Because the understanding of the first noble truth, one knows as it really is, this is dukkha, is the gateway not only to awakening, not only to liberation, but it's also the gateway to the arising and nourishing of compassion. What is compassion? It's that feeling in the heart that wants to help others and ourselves be free of suffering. Now it's beautifully expressed in a short haiku by Ryokan, great 18th century, I think 18th or 19th century, uh, Zen hermit poet, recluse. He said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. You know, and it's just it's such a beautiful image of compassion. Just that wish to gather up like a mother would gather up, you know, her children, gather up all the people in this floating world. What opens us to this feeling of compassion is precisely our deepening understanding of dukkha, of suffering. Awareness of suffering is the cause for compassion to arise. So in this regard, we can see that compassion is the great gift of mindfulness. When we're mindful of how things actually are, we come close to dukkha. We're willing to come close to dukkha. The fruit of that is compassion. We become more aware of the suffering in ourselves and in the world and also the way we close off to it, the conditioned patterns of avoiding or denial. We see all that. Realizing the first noble truth is the practice of compassion because it is the practice of letting things in. It's the practice of letting people in, letting in all parts of ourselves. There's a a beautiful little haiku by the poet Issa. He said, in the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. It's just that sense. In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. In the open heart of awareness, there's nothing left out. And as we let everything in, as we let in all parts of the world, all parts of ourselves, we experience this first noble truth of dukkha. And out of it arises a great compassion. So the Buddha concluded his teaching on this first noble truth with a recounting of the night of his realization under the Bodhi tree. So this is what he said about it. He, he was describing his realization of this noble truth. He said, this is the noble truth of dukkha. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, 
the light that arose in me concerning things not heard before. This dukkha as a noble truth should be realized. So that was the second part of his understanding. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the light that arose in me concerning things not heard before. And then the culmination of his realization. This dukkha as a noble truth has been fully realized. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the light that arose in me concerning things not heard before. So we practice. We really practice carefully and with diligence the investigation, the exploring of this truth, this noble truth of dukkha. And at a certain point of completion, we will realize this understanding is complete. It has been fully accomplished. I mean, that will be a glorious moment. You know, and there's this a phrase that's often used to express kind of the enlightenment, you know, of people who have awakened. And it's a phrase I love. I even have it, I have it on a little plaque on my desk as a reminder. It says, done is what had to be done. And it's like the glorious song of awakening. Done is what had to be done. So we practice. We practice exploring this first noble truth. Out of it is born a great compassion, and out of it comes the understanding of the following three noble truths, which we'll discuss in following weeks. So let's sit for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.